Good morning and happy new year, everyone. Let's begin class with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessings you've given us and how you have guided in our ministry and our lives. We ask that as we enter a new year that you will, uh, that we dedicate our lives to you and, we, and that you will direct how things unfold this year, both in our lives personally, in our ministry, in our nation, and in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number three in the corner of the book of Revelation. And the message uh, uh, this week is called Jesus' Messages to the Seven Churches. And so let's just start, even though they had Ephesus in last week, let's do all seven because we didn't do Ephesus last week. And let's start with the, the message to Ephesus. And I'm going to read these out of the remedy as we go through and then we'll discuss them. So this is um, uh, out of the remedy uh, message to Ephesus. Write to the messenger to my recovering children in the church of Ephesus. This message comes from Jesus who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. I know you, your choices, actions, works, determination, and commitment. I know that your hearts are repulsed by wickedness and humanity, and that you have examined those who claim to be my ambassadors but are not, and you rightly determine them to be false. I know that you have stayed true, revealing my character of love despite persecution, and have not given up. Yet I have diagnosed you with one serious problem. You have let go of your first love. I implore you to remember the pinnacle of purity from which you have fallen. Turn back to your first love and practice again the methods you did, you did then. If you do not turn back, the light of truth will be lost to you and your minds will be darkened. To your advantage, you have hated the hedonistic practice of the Nicolaitans that, I, that so damaged the mind, which I also hate. Those whose minds are open to truth will understand what the Spirit reveals to the churches. Those who overcome, complete the treatment, and are renewed in love will eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What do the lampstands represent? The churches. Get your mind around that again. I'll just remind you we talked about it last week. If the lampstands in the Bible, we, we give you the text represent the churches, and those lampstands supposedly, and our church teaches that, that that's evidence that he's walking in the sanctuary, but the lampstands are the churches, then what's the sanctuary? What's the sanctuary built out of? It's just another evidence to support that idea. What contributes to the waning of love. It talks about your love has is, is, is been waning. You're, you've lost your first love. What, what would contribute to the decrease of love in a person? Fear. Okay, fear. Lies believed. Break the circle of love. When we're reading the New Testament, do we see that Paul was fighting against people who were bringing distortions already in at that time? In Galatians and other places. He talked about this. So, so distorted views of God... Just like in your own marriage, if somebody begins telling you lies about your spouse, if you believe those, it's going to undermine your love. So lies, which would incite fear? Attempts to restrict liberty. Attempts to restrict liberty. What happens to love when the actions become legal requirements? You're required by the threat of punishment to do these things, rather than you do them because you love the person. What about injury or betrayal or hardship? Can, can injury or betrayal damage a person's love or hardship? Were there individuals that were ratting other individuals out and, and families that were being fractured and, and, and betrayals and were people struggling with real life stuff? Why did Jesus say to them, if they don't turn back the light of truth that they have, they have, so, so, so they have truth, they have comprehension, they have light. But he says if they don't turn back, the light that they have will be lost and their minds will be darkened. Why? Why is that so? 
And, and is that only for them, or is, that a tr- is, he, is he articulating a truth that applies to all humanity for all time? That when you have truth, when you have knowledge, when you have light from God, uh, if you don't continue to walk in the path of advancing in light that's moving forward, if you stop at some point and say, this is it, as far as truth goes, and you don't accept the next step of truth, is it true that your mind will then become darkened if you won't move forward? And the truth that you have actually becomes darkness. How can truth become darkness? Walking away from it, going the opposite direction. Does that mean, um, are you suggesting, well, we, re- we no longer believe that truth. We, we, we now have replaced it with some other thing. That's possible. But how about you still hold to that idea, but that idea no longer is true? The Jews had a, had a belief that the Messiah was coming and that the Messiah was coming through as a descendant of David. They had this belief. They were looking for that Messiah. That was the truth, wasn't it? And, there's, and yet when Christ came, the Messiah, did they accept that light? Many of them. Or did they reject it? And today, and since that time, all who continue down the path having rejected Christ, but are still looking for the Messiah as a descendant of David... Is that truth still light to them or is it darkness to them now? Do you see how it's darkness now? Do people become darkened because if you don't believe what I say, God speaking, he's going to use his power to make your mind dark. Is that how it happens? Or is it a design law? It's a natural outcome. Neurobiologically, psychologically, you get changed by your choices and your beliefs. So consider this quote from the book, Thoughts of the Mount of Blessing, page 92. The same law obtains in the spiritual as in the natural world. Pause right there. That one sentence is pithy. Think through the implication. If you believe it's true, the same law obtains in the spiritual as in the natural world. How do the laws of the natural world work? Do we say the spiritual laws are working in the same way? That's what we say. Do you know all those who oppose us disagree with that? No, 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 no. The, the laws of nature, physics, health, yes, they have natural causes. But the spiritual laws, the moral laws, well, God made up a list of rules and he monitors them and he inflicts punishments for them. They don't work that way. This is the big corruption in Christianity. This author understood design law and the violations of God's design laws actually injure and there is no courtroom in heaven in which, people, uh, in which God and his angels are reviewing records and adding up how much punishment needs to be inflicted upon people. That entire construct is a construct out of Rome. It's not true. Let's keep on with the quote. He who abides in darkness will at last lose the power of vision. He is shut in by, the, by a deeper than midnight blackness, and to him the brightness of noontime can bring no light. He walks in darkness and knows not whether he goes, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John 2.11 Through persistently cherishing evil, willfully disregarding the pleadings of divine love, the sinner loses the love for good, the desire for God, and the very capacity to receive the light of heaven. You see, what happens when we persist in rejecting truth, when we persist in holding to lies, we actually warp our reasoning capacities. We sear our consciences. We lose over time the capacity to tell right from wrong if we persist in that. 
This is not an infliction. It's a natural result. Continuing on with the quote. The invitation of mercy is still full of love. And the light is shining as brightly as when it first dawned upon his soul. But the voice falls on deaf ears, the light to blinded eyes. Notice, God doesn't stop being the source of love. God doesn't stop being the source of truth. Consider the sun for a minute. The sun still shines, but a person who has decided to go welding without any eye protection, and they weld and weld and weld with no eye protection, eventually burn out their retinas, and now they're blind. They don't see the light anymore. The light is still just as bright as it ever was. The truth from God is always the truth from God, and the love from God is always the love from God. But when we persist in bringing distortions and lies in and holding to them and rejecting truth, we eventually lose the ability to see the truth anymore. <clears throat> Continue on with the quote. And I think this is really powerful. No soul is ever finally deserted of God, given up to his own ways, so long as there is any hope of his salvation. Man turns from God, not God from man. Amen. We also see another prodigal son story. Prodigal son story, good one. Our Heavenly Father follows us with appeals and warnings and assurances of compassion until further opportunities and privileges would be wholly in vain. The responsibility rests with the sinner. By resisting the Spirit of God today, he prepares the way for a second resistance of light when it comes with mightier power. Thus he passes on from one stage of resistance to another until at last the light will fall, will fail to impress and he will cease to respond in any measure to the Spirit of God. Then even the light that is in thee has become darkness. The very truth we do know has become so perverted as to increase the blindness of the soul. This is natural consequence. This is design law. We are given freedom and liberty. God presents truth to us in love in ways that we can comprehend, but he leaves us free to decide. Will we embrace the truth? Will we apply the truth? Or will we reject it and hold to some previous idea that we feel more comfortable with at that point in our life? Sunday's lesson, going into Revelation, this is Revelation 2, 8 through 11. To the messenger, to my recovering children in the church of Smyrna, write, this message comes from Jesus, who is the beginning and the ending, the origin and completion, who died, but in doing so destroyed death and now lives again. I know about your suffering and poverty, but in reality you are incredibly rich in what heaven values. I know that you have been mistreated by those who claim to be loyal to God, but really are not. They have enthroned Satan in their hearts, their spirit temples. Don't fear the coming trials. Satan will put some of you in prison, and your faith will be tried. And some will be persecuted for 10 days. Trust me, even if threatened with death, and I will give you eternal life. Those whose minds are open to truth will understand what the Spirit reveals to the churches. Those who prevail by completing the treatment and by being renewed in love cannot be harmed by the second eternal death. So the messages to the churches have basically three interpretations. And all three can be applicable. The three interpretations or applications are historic, meaning they were written to the people at John's day for those churches in that time. Historical application, the people living there. A prophetic application, meaning that they're written to also have an application for periods of church history since the time of Christ. And, and we'll look at that. And a universal application, meaning that any individual Christian at any point in history may find themselves in a circumstance described to that church. So that may be applying to that person. 
And so the prophetic period covered by the, this message, Church of Ephesus, was Church of Ephesus, first church, AD 31 or common era 31 to uh, 100. That was, uh, and when we talk about these times, these are general times. These are not time prophecies in the Bible where there's precise times. These are general periods of time. So if someone say, well, we think it's, you know, from 31 to 105 AD. Okay, fine. There's no, no argue about it. It's an approximation. Okay, so don't, don't, get, don't get hung up on that type of a detail. And the prophetic period um, to Smyrna is thought to be about 100 AD to 313. The 10 days of persecution... If you look, read in various Bible commentaries, both have both a literal and a prophetic application. The literal application was during, and some you know put it that way, and I think it's probably both. The people in John's day, there was a period of time where they were actually persecuted uh, in, in, uh, during the uh, first century AD. It was a short period of persecution. And then many people pry, apply the day-year principle. There were 10 years of persecution under Diocletian, which ended in 313 when Constantine legalized Christianity. I wouldn't argue with which way it is. It's not. And some, one of the traps of the devil, I think, sometimes in Bible prophecy, there's multiple applications. Jesus does this in Matthew 24 when he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, mingling it with the end of time. And there's more than one application to what he's saying there. And sometimes people get in this black and white either or thing, and it's this or it's that, when in fact it has dual application. So the message to Smyrna that applies to us today, is there any message in, in the message to Smyrna that applies to us today? I would suggest the message that we can embrace and go forward things. And this is not exclusive. This is just something I saw. Jesus is the creator and the savior, which has destroyed the cause of death and has the remedy to provide eternal life for all who trust him. That's the message that we can take. If you value what heaven values, which is godly character and principles and methods, then, uh, then you will be misrepresented by others and mistreated. That's a message to Smyrna. And we don't need to fear earthly trials as long as we trust Jesus. He wins in the end. And you win in the end if you're on his side. So let's read Revelation 2, 12 to 18. To the messenger, to my recovering children in the church of Pergamum, write... This message comes from Jesus, the source of truth as sharp as a double-edged sword. I know, you, I know you live where Satan has enthroned himself, yet you have continued to live in harmony with my character, methods, and principles. You did not reject me, even as Antipas, my trustworthy witness, was executed in the place where Satan lives. Yet I have diagnosed a few serious problems. Some of you are like Balaam seeking to empower and enrich yourselves. You have infected the remedy with appeasement theology, and you promote sexual practices deviant from my design in Eden. And as if this wasn't bad enough, you have those who advocate the hedonistic practice of the Nicolaitans, which, de which destroy the mind. Reject these falsehoods and return to my methods. Otherwise, I will come and fight against these distortions with the sword of truth spoken from my mouth. Those whose minds are open to truth will understand what the Spirit reveals to the churches. To everyone who prevails by completing the treatment and being renewed in love, I will give some of the hidden manna, my nature and character of love. I will recreate them in my likeness with their own unique individuality, purified by my character. They will be like pure white stones, each stamped with their own unique self, signed by me. What are the lessons for, the, for today from the message to Pergamum? 
What are the lessons for us today? Be careful not to fall into the trap of Balaam, which is seeking to empower oneself by working against God while claiming to be representing God. Balaam, remember Balaam, seeking to put a curse on God's people while pretending to enrich himself, but yet he's a prophet of the Lord. Don't fall into the trap. Be careful not to pervert God's design for life, how he designed life to work best. And we are promised the character of Christ to be renewed in heart and mind and sealed of God if we trust him. That's what he'll do. He'll, he'll write his character in us. We will partake, be partakers of the divine nature. In the fourth paragraph of the lesson, it says, the Christians in Pergamum faced temptations from both outside and inside the church. While most of them remained faithful, some of the Nicolaitans advocated compromise with paganism in order to avoid persecution. Like Balaam, who apostatized and enticed the Israelites to uh, sin against God on the way to the promised land, these members found it more convenient and even rewarding to compromise their faith. What does it mean to compromise our faith? Accept a lie. Accept a lie. Okay, so that, that, that begs the question. That's the first thing that popped into my mind. Is compromising the faith the same thing as being deceived to believe a lie? Or would that be more along the lines of corrupting the faith? I had to think through this. Is, is believing a lie? So now I believe this to be true, and I'm going to be faithful to it, but it's actually false. Am I compromising or am I corrupted? Corrupted. So would compromising the faith, going along with something, when you know it's wrong, it's convenient. Yeah, you don't really believe it's true. In fact, you believe it's not true. But you don't want to cause waves. You don't want to be disfellowship. You don't want to lose your access to the to the temple. I think the word you're looking for is capitulating to the politically correct. Capitulating to the politically correct, he suggests. You don't want to lose your job. So we compromise. Go along. Is that what is that what compromise means? That's what it seems to me. And both can be happening. The church can be corrupted, your mind can be corrupted because you believe lies. But you can also, for various inducements, benefits, or fears of consequences, not have a change in your belief. You understand it's wrong, but you go along anyway for convenience sake. And typically what will happen if you compromise for convenience sake, then the mind will begin to shift. And then the corruption comes because you'll begin to tell yourself a story, a reframing that will allow you to no longer feel like you're compromising. Because compromising, if you've ever compromised even for a little bit, or even thought about compromising, it creates internal tension. When you go against your conscience, your conscience will begin working on you. And so you'll either come back to what you'd believe true, or you'll change the way you think about things so you'll no longer feel the conviction. So the light in you will become darkness. You call things unpacking when we read things that are difficult to understand. And so it sounds like that is kind of the opposite of reframing. Reframing would be trying to pose it in a way that makes more acceptable sense to what you already believe, whether it's true or not. But unpacking, what you do a lot, is to take what appears that some people mystified and try to demystify it. 
by actually analyzing each and everything and try to find the, the uncorrupted version. Well, uh, since you brought up that, that terminology, um, kind of focused on this idea, reframing is just a tool. And you can definitely reframe things for your convenience sake, as I was mentioning. But you also can take people who see things in a certain way, and then you can recast it or reframe it in a new light to help them see it differently. So it can, that, that tool can be used for good as well. What is the standard of righteousness? If, if we want to know where the lines are, where we compromise or don't compromise, or where we can... Because there are places you can compromise on things that are not actually compromising God's principles. You know, I wanted a certain color carpet in the church, and they wanted a different color carpet in the church. Okay, I wanted uh, this much on the church organ, they wanted that much on the church organ. I mean, there can be compromises of various decisions, right, that are not violating principles. True? Okay, but that's not what this is talking about. It's actually talking about violating God's principles in the, in the text. So where is the standard that we use? What standard is it that we use to draw that line? Design law. I love you. <laughs> she said design law. Let me read you this quotation out of our, our high calling, and we'll unpack it as we go through page 138. It says, our Redeemer testifies, Behold, I have set before you an open door that no man can shut. Revelation 3, 8, we're going to come to that in a little bit, this open door idea. Through the open door into the temple of God, we see the royal law deposited in the Ark of the Testament. Through this door, light shines from the holy, just as the good law presenting and good law presenting to man the true standard of righteousness, that he may make no mistake in the formation of a character that will meet the requirements of God. Pause. Why does God require a righteous character? Because that's what life requires. Because that's what life requires. I come back to that over and over because I really want to hammer this into your head. It's the same reason that you're required to breathe. It's just how life works. Unrighteous character results in death. It'd be like saying, why do my parents require that I'm, I'm healthy? Why do they require that I don't, you know, jab pencils in my eyes? See, that's really what this is saying. This is what, how life exists. Sin is condemned by the law. We must put it away. Pride and selfishness can find no place in the character without crowding out him who was meek and lowly of heart. The law of God is the standard by which character is to be tested. If we erect a standard to suit ourselves and attempt to follow a criterion of our own devising, we shall utterly fail to secure heaven at last. Pause. When you hear that, what law lens are you using? Using the law lens that Donna suggested, a, a design law? Or when you hear stuff like this, the law of God is the standard by which character said, do you hear rules written on stone? And I'm going to be sure I behave. To, what do you hear? What law lens? Let's keep going. The mind must yield obedience to the royal law of liberty, the law which the Spirit of God impresses upon the heart and makes plain to the understanding. Did you, did you hear what was described there? It's a law that impresses itself upon the heart. And it's called the law of liberty. Can imposed imperial law that requires oversight and punishment for breaking bring transformation to the heart? Can it bring love to the heart? It can bring a transformation for the good. For the good, yes, yes. And can it provide freedom? 
Or do you get enslaved when you operate under a system like that? All the things you can't do. And you make rules upon rules upon rules. You not only get to 10, then you get all the other 600 and other rules of Sabbath keeping that you're not allowed to do. And so you've got to sew your handkerchief on your garment because you can't carry it because that would be work. Which is what was taught by the Jews in Christ's day. And you're a slave to the system. There's no freedom in this imperial law. Only design law gives freedom. Okay, keep going. This next line. Think about this. I'm going to ask you to tell me what it means. Put on your thinking caps. It's going to scare you at first. Don't be scared. The expulsion of sin must be the act of the soul itself in calling into exercise its noblest powers. Rephrase. The acceptance and recognition of the way we were designed to be other-centered love, to be able to let God... Fill us up so much that he just writes his love throughout our heart. And that's then the way that, that we become in our existence and, and interaction with others. That acceptance is what fills us up and the rejection of it is what leaves in darkness. So the expulsion of sin must be the act of the soul itself in calling into exercise its noblest powers. So. Suggestion that it is a... The way we on to when you have that choice of being able to have the selfish, um, my good, not yours, fear of self-action, choose not. So how can your soul expel sin from your soul? It sounds right. suspicious that I watch it by works on the, on the surface. Well, no, if you, have, if you have a finite space and it has one fluid in it and you replace it with another fluid to the point at which the original fluid is displaced... You replace you have display, you have removed the original fluid and replaced it with the second fluid, which is a constant. I like where you, I like where you're going with your analogy. So let me ask you go along those lines. Is the remedy to our sinfulness found in our souls? No. No. Yeah. In our church. Is is the power to overcome sinfulness found in our souls? In our choice of God, God is the source. You're exactly right. I'm getting there. I'm just pointing this out. I'm clarifying so people read this. You understand what is yours and what is not yours. It is not yours to create the remedy to sin. It is not yours to uh, be, be to be the power source for the victory over sin. That's not yours. Notice the key word in the sentence was must be the act, i.e., action, i.e., what you're saying, choice. It's the choice, the action, the soul. To, what's the choice? To reject the lie. It's your choice. And to accept the truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will. And the truth, when you accept the truth, Christ stands at the door and knocks. You open the heart. Fluid metaphor. Spirit comes in. But your act to accept truth, trust God, open heart, and then... Invite him in, and then as he, the source of truth and love, enlightens you, you embrace it, you, you resonate with it, you celebrate it, you love it, you like it, you say, I want more of it, and you choose it, and you begin to walk that path in how you live. And you share it. And you share it, yeah. So Tim, as we accept his love, then the love expels the sin. Yes. The only freedom a finite will can enjoy, continue with the quote, 
consists in coming into harmony with the will of God, complying with the conditions that make man a partaker of the divine nature. The only freedom we can have, according to this author, is coming into unity with God and living in harmony with him and his design. Why is that true? Do you believe it's true first? Why? By beholding we become. Use a fit, yeah, by beholding we become, but why is that where our freedom is? Why are we not free to reject him? We are free to reject him, but why when we do it, do we lose freedom? Only in God's design is there continued, complete freedom. There's oppression, there is lies, there's control of a negative consequence outside of his... So... Let's use a physical analogy because remember the laws in nature are like the laws for the, the spiritual, okay? Somebody smokes two, three packs a day. Do they gain more freedom over time or do they lose freedom? Have you seen anybody with COPD tied to their oxygen machine? Are they free? Have they lost freedom or are they gained freedom? How about somebody eats Big Macs and fries three times a day? Will they ma- gain more freedom or lose freedom? Why will they lose freedom? And they sit on their couch and they don't exercise. Why will they lose freedom? What happens uh, even uh, if, they ha- if there's a, they're in a hotel and the fire alarm goes off and they have to go down 12 flights of stairs? What happens? What they're going down and not They might not make it because they've lost freedom. Why have they lost freedom? Because they've been living out of harmony with the healthiest lifestyle. Out of harmony with the laws of health. You cannot violate God's laws and have freedom. It only erodes liberty and freedom. Continue on with the quote. Oh, yeah, and uh, when we substitute that imperial law, think about the, the Pharisees in Christ's day. Were they free? Have you ever seen people more enslaved to a system of rules? All right, the law of God given from Sinai is a copy of the mind and will of the infinite God. A copy of the mind and will? You mean he's got ten rules, like, uh, you know, digitized in his head? Is that what that means? Does this mean the Ten Commandments were always in existence, which the imperial, imposed, rule-keeping, legalist will try and tell us? Ten Commandments, they're written in law. They're in the sanctuary. They're, they're in, in, in the whole, most holy place. There's, there's ten rules up there. And they use quotes like this. Is that what that means? Or is this author trying to suggest to us that the principles of the Ten Commandments, principles of love, originated in God, and God stepped down and codified them for the need of a humanity darkened in sin? Well, it's like the laws of science. They've always been there. They just weren't quantified. That's true. The laws of science have always been there. They just weren't written down. So he wrote them down in a precise way, but, but not for the whole universe. Angels didn't have a law about sins passing down three and four generations, did they? Yeah, but we were the broken ones. But did angels have a law about sins passing down three and four generations? No. No. Why? Because we were given procreative abilities, and we can change ourselves and epigenetically alter our gene expression, and we have kids. Those kids come out so much like the parents, don't they? 
We can pass down. And, the, and with the epigenetic science we have now, we don't only pass out the sequences we pass down. We pass down the epigenetic instructions telling how those sequences are expressed. And so if we live healthy prior to having kids, we pass on advantages. We abuse ourselves with alcohol and drugs and all kinds of other stuff. We pass on disadvantages to our kids, just like the scripture teaches. Do the angels in heaven need a law honor their mothers and fathers? They didn't need that law. This was a codification for this species this law in this form did not exist prior to Sinai. What's the basis of your precept that other beings don't have procreative capability? That we are a unique species. That doesn't mean they don't have procreative capability. Well, I've never seen any, any evidence of any kind that would suggest they do. Well, I haven't seen the dark side of the moon either, but that's there. Okay. Jesus suggested it when he said in heaven, the meaning of marriage or giving a marriage will be like the angels. So he suggests the angels don't have those types of relationships. So there is a piece of evidence for that. In Jesus' words. So I'm going to give you a quote from the same author with this idea. This is the Ten Commandments. I really want to break this idea that the Ten Commandments in that form have been eternally in existence. It hasn't been so. Even the Sabbath commandment. How do we measure the beginning and the end of the Sabbath? How is it measured? Sunset, sunset to sunset, right? Which, which, the rotation of this planet in relationship to that sun, which didn't exist until creation week of this planet. But angels, reading Job chapter 38, they were already in existence. That Sabbath didn't exist yet because it wasn't needed. There's no need for the Sabbath prior to Satan's rebellion in heaven. Prior to the rebellion, nobody questioned God's goodness. Nobody questioned God's methods. Nobody questioned God's law, but Satan questioned his goodness, and he questioned his law, and he suggested he makes rules, and he suggested he punish for breaking rules, and thus the Sabbath became a demonstration, an evidence of his method. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. Are you suggesting that the references of the Sabbath was made for man and for mankind? I'm suggesting it was made because this whole creation was a microcosm. It says in Corinthians that, the, uh, that we are a spectacle, a theater to angels and to men. And so this whole world was created as a lesson book where Adam and Eve represent the Godhead and the two come into the unity of love and cre- create beings in their image. And they create beings and they were told to do that in a world before sin. And had they been faithful, they would have had children in a sinless world and they would have governed this world without sin. And what would the universe have seen? Enslavement, abuse, domination, control, or constant loving, other-centered, self-sacrificial giving. And how would Adam and Eve treated the planet? How would they treated the lower life forms? Yes, with complete self-sacrificial service and love, serving those other life forms constantly for their welfare and interest. And so the Sabbath was part of that plan to demonstrate and keep man in a healthy relationship. And each week, it's an evidence that we are privileged to see in this great controversy context because we were made without the past history, without having heard the previous arguments. We, we were made and we needed a, a, set, a sign, a signal, a flag, an evidence. And every week, the whole human race passes through this day. Every week, we pass through it. And every week we have an opportunity to consider it. We don't have to consider it. We can close our eyes to it. But every week we consider it. And we can look all week long. Remember the Sabbath day to keep yourselves holy. What does that mean? What's holiness? Godliness. Living in harmony with God's God's character. And remember what the Sabbath represents. Truth presented in love. And God stops using power. It's the day where God doesn't use power. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't threaten. He leaves you free. Think for yourself. 
And so all week long, we remember, hey, you know what? That's how God operates. I'm going to be an operator who presents truth and love and these people free. I'm not going to take the reins of power and begin passing laws to punish people who have a different religious view or view of God than I have. That's not how God operates. It's beautiful stuff. And so here's this question, again, about the law. And I've given you evidences from the commandments themselves to, to demonstrate they were not always in existence in that form. They were made after mankind sinned and at Sinai. But here's, here's a uh, quote out of First Elected Messages 2.30 from the same author. The law of God existed before the creation of man, or else Adam could not have sinned. After the transgression of Adam, the principles of the law were not changed, but were definitely arranged and expressed to meet man in his fallen condition. They were codified in a certain way for our need, but they didn't exist in that, that way prior to our need. They were the principles of love. Love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Your neighbor is yourself. That was the law. Continuing on with the quote about the law, it is, it is sacredly revealed by the holy angels. Obedience to its requirements will perfect Christian character and restore man through Christ to his condition before the fall. What? That sounds like a system of works, man. It's a system of works. You're going to make us slaves to keep all those rules. No, this is design law. If you have imperial law lenses on, you hear this as all the rules you've got to keep. If you understand design law, you hear it just like doctors and patients. Doctors can never get patients well who are violating the laws of health. You violate the laws of health, health problems are predictable and unavoidable. You can't avoid the problem. However, you begin harmonizing with the laws of health, you can't avoid the benefits. You can't avoid getting healthier. So the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It brings life. Psalms 19. Yeah? When you understand it and you embrace it, but if you, if you keep the law based on fear of an authoritarian God who's going to punish you if you break it and you're doing the right rule like you're going to church on the day you believe the Bible says you should go to church on and, and you're doing it because if you don't, God's going to put a demerit in your record book in heaven and you'll get punished in the judgment. You're not being healed. You're being damaged. Moving on. Satan doesn't want us to understand the truth about God's law. He wants us to believe the lie that it's like human law, a legal system requiring punishments. Uh, somebody sent me this uh, quotation in the last week or two, so I'll, I'll read it to you. It's out of a book called Prophets and Kings, page 311. In Isaiah's day, the spiritual understanding of mankind was dark through misapprehension of God. That's the same problem through human history. We get dark when we misunderstand God. The dark ages were because of an imperial God construct who punishes People. I mean, this is, this is what it was. But anyway, keep going. Long had Satan sought to lead men to look upon their creator as the author of sin and suffering and death. Those whom he had thus deceived imagined that God was hard and exacting. They regarded him as watching to denounce and condemn, unwilling to receive the sinner so long as there was a legal excuse for not helping him. The law of love by which heaven is ruled has been mis misrepresented by the arch deceiver as a restriction upon men's happiness and a burdensome yoke from which they should be glad to escape. He declared that its precepts could not be obeyed and that the penalties of transgression will be bestowed arbitrarily. Think that through. Do you understand how pithy this is? The law by which heaven is ruled is the law of love. 
That's that principle of giving, the other-centeredness upon which life is built to operate. Yet men have conceived that the penalties for breaking the law are bestowed arbitrarily. What does arbitrarily mean? If you decide to jump off the Empire State Building, will there be a penalty for that? Is it bestowed arbitrarily? If you decide to use IV heroin, will there be a penalty for that? Yes. Is, is it bestowed arbitrarily? Yes. No. No. Considering that the laws of gravity and medicine are arbitrary and that in, uh, in terms of cause and effect, yes. Uh, arbitrary is, is I don't, maybe you don't understand the definition of the word. Okay. Arbitrary means there is no cause and effect. It's just at a whim that it's put on. Cause and effect rules out arbitrariness. <laughs> Inconsistent application In, of the consequence. Right. Okay. So if a Catholic Jew and Protestant all jumped off the Empire State Building, does gravity treat them differently? No. <laughs> no. An arbitrary application would be, well, the one who put their sacrifice at the temple in the right way, when they jump off, they float, they don't fall. That would be an arbitrary application of the law of gravity. So what kind of law is applied arbitrarily? So that some people who commit a certain crime get so many years in prison, and some people who commit the same crime get probation, and some people get a fine, and some people... What kind of law is applied arbitrarily? Imposed law. Quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is not applied arbitrarily. People's decisions are arbitrary, and they work through quantum mechanics. So the quantum mechanic principles are constants upon which the universe run, but those constants allow for individual freedom of choice, and it's the choices of individuals that are arbitrary, not the quantum mechanics upon which they run. Quantum mechanics based completely on statistics. I'm PhD in physics, I can tell. Monday's lesson, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. To the messenger of my recovering children in the church of Thyatira, write... This message is from Jesus, Son of God, whose eyes shine brightly like fire and whose feet glow like the metal in a furnace. I know the choices you have made, your love and devotion, the service and dedication, and how your healing progresses as you are achieving more now than when you first took the remedy. Yet I have diagnosed this problem. You have accepted the teachings of Jezebel, which make me look like Baal, a being who imposes law, inflicts torture, and must be appeased. Her teachings mislead people into eternalizing pagan ideas about God, including God being like Baal and requiring bloody payments, and thus committing spiritual adultery by giving their hearts to a false god. I have given her time to turn away from the lies about God, but she refuses. So I will let her reap the suffering that comes from operating outside my design for life. And all those who accept her view of God commit adultery with her and will suffer terrible unless they reject terribly, unless they reject the lies and return to the truth about God and his methods of love. I will destroy her offshoots. Then all my children will know that I diagnose perfectly the conditions of hearts and minds. I will provoke, provide each person what is in accord with their own choice. Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, those who have rejected the lies about me and refuse to believe that I am like Satan alleges, no other burden will come upon you. Just hold true to what you currently know until I return. Everyone who prevails by completing the treatment and lives in harmony with my methods of love until the end, I will free from the power and authority of the nations. He will intervene with an unbreakable shepherd's rod. He will destroy the nation's ability to coerce and deceive like iron crushing pottery. I will give them the same power to break free as I receive from my father. I will give them the morning star. I will give them all of myself. Those 
whose minds are open to truth will understand what the Spirit reveals to the churches. What is the lesson for us today? God is working through Jesus to heal all who trust him. But God has been misrepresented in Christianity to be like Baal. We are to reject the false version of God and stay true to Jesus, and we receive the indwelling of his transforming power. This uh, prophetic application, for those who do the prophetic application, it's uh, 538 AD to 1565, Dark Ages, Middle Ages. Now, Jezebel was queen of Baal. That's really kind of what her name means, Jezebel, Baal. Uh, And uh, remember, let's just walk through really briefly who Baal was, so you remember. Baal was the son of El. El was the father god, Baal was the son, as in El-Ohim or El-Shaddai, El. He was the god of weather, rain, lightning, which refreshed the earth and brought the harvest. Baal fought against the great serpent, Leviathan. He also fought against Mote, the god of death. And in his battle with Mote, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the earth. Now what's wrong with worshiping a god who is the son of the father in heaven? who is the creator who brings the harvest and brings the rain and brings the sunshine, who, is, uh, who fights against the great serpent, who fights against death, who dies in that battle with death, rises again to bring us life. What's wrong with worshiping Baal? Right here in text 20, including God being like Baal, required bloody payment. So it's the motive and the, the attitude of the God and the... And that's exactly right. And this is the, do you see the deception is not in these elements. The deception is bail required payment, appeasement, sacrifice. Without that, bail would punish. With that, bail would bless. It was the inducement. Bail had to be induced with these things. Bail became Zeus to the Greeks, the god of thunder. Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to Christians who worship a God that requires a human blood sacrifice in order to propitiate his wrath so he won't punish us. That's Baal worship. That's why Malachi prophesied before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah must come again to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and sons to the fathers. Why? That's a message of love. Okay? Turning the hearts back to each other. That's a love message. Must come with the character, uh, God's character of love message in order to overthrow this Baal image that has corrupted all of Christianity. But you can see how the Jews would get a little off track because they were being asked to sacrifice to this God all the time. But, you know, that's how it's easy for Jews and various people to look at the sanctuary service and see sacrifice and translate it into a Baal-type worship and lose all the meaning that was there to begin with. Yes, exactly right. All right, move on to Tuesday's lesson, Revelation 3, 1 through 6. Uh, you know, I hope we can get through the seven churches. I, I mean, maybe we'll go over if you guys want to, because I don't, the pace we're going, we may not make it. But I think it's, it, the, the Philadelphia and Laodicea are very interesting. We'll go to uh, the message to my children of the church of Sardis, right? The message is from Jesus, who directs the seven intelligent beings standing before the throne of God, this, and the seven messengers who are like bright stars shining forth the truth. I know your choices. You appear to be alive, living in harmony with the law of love, but you are dead in fear and self-centeredness. Wake up before it's too late. Heal what remains viable, but 
is about to die if you don't take action soon. For despite all your rituals and religious acts, you are devoid of love in the sight of my Father. Remember the remedy you have received. Accept it. Apply it to your lives. Turn around from the ways of the world. But if you refuse to wake up to your condition and embrace the truth, you will be unaware of what is happening, and my coming will be like a thief's. You will not know the time I will come to you. Yet... You still have a few faithful people in Sardis whose characters have not been stained with selfishness. They will walk by my side, dressed in the perfection of my character of love, pure and white, for they are healed. Everyone who prevails by completing the treatment and lives in harmony with my methods of love until the end will also have a character perfect and pure. I will never remove them from the book of life, but proclaim to my Father and his angels they are t- that they have been completely healed. Those whose minds are open to the truth will understand what the Spirit reveals to the churches." What is the message for us, or the lessons for us today in the message to Sardis? Beware of selfishness. You know where your heart is. Choose God's unselfish love. Good. Yes, God wants to heal and transform our hearts and minds and characters. And if we refuse him, what does he do? He lets us go. He lets us go. And I think there's a message that religious organizations and structure do not save, but often obstruct God's healing plan. You read what there, you have this form of godliness, but no power. I'm going to read to you um, and the period, the prophetic time period for this church, um, for those who like that view, is 1565 to 1740. This is from the SDE Bible Commentary regarding what we just read. It says, Some decades after the beginning of the Reformation, the new churches experienced a period of violent doctrinal controversy. Eventually, differences of opinion were settled by the adoption of definitive creeds that tended to discourage the search for additional truths. By a similar process, the Roman Catholic Church in the early centuries of its history had crystallized much of its theology. Protected by the power and prestige of the state and ensconced within the shelter of rigid creedal confessions, the national churches of the Protestant world generally came to content themselves with a form of godliness without its power. So this commentary takes the position that what's happening in Sardis is being described as a codification and creedal uh, doctrinal application with very little spiritual renewal happening. And that's coming because of a hierarchical church structure that tells people, here are the things you need to believe, and here are the ways you need to behave, and if you do the check boxes in your system, and you don't go to Mass, or you do your confession, or you get your feet washed every 13 weeks, or, or whatever it is your church says you need to do, then you're good. Creeds with centralized authority to enforce those creeds is what the commentary suggests is a problem. What's happening in the Adventist church right now? <laughs> do you know, if you ask the, some of the officials in the church, they will tell you, we do not have a creed. We have 28 fundamental beliefs. Go look at a dictionary and look up the word creed in the dictionary and ask and see what it says. First words in the definition of a creed is a system of fundamental beliefs. But we don't have a creed. We have fundamental beliefs. And do you know why they're adamant we don't have a creed in the Adventist church? you know why they're adamant about it? Because Ellen White wrote that the Seventh-day Adventist has no creed except the Bible. The Bible alone is its creed. So we can't have a system that we require people to adhere to. We don't do that, do we? 
Because what does a system like that do? It shuts down growth. It, it, it blocks out advancing light. God is infinite. We're finite. Infinite. Finite. It's an infinite gap. We are never to stop moving forward. So the Adventist church was not supposed to be a creedal system. The Adventist church was designed to be a movement that continues simply to move forward in advancing light and understanding not someone who sets their true stakes down and says, this is as far as truth goes and truth shall advance no more. That's right. I'm going to move on. There's some stuff. <laughs> I'm tempted to read this. <laughs> All right, since quantum mechanics was mentioned, I'll read this. <laughs> This was written in 1897. And I want you to understand quantum, quantum realities are written here. It is God's plan that every part of his government shall depend on every other part. The whole is a wheel within the wheel, working with an entire harmony. God moves upon human forces, causing his spirit to touch invisible cords, and the vibration rings to the extremity of the universe. So you're getting into string theory. That's what this author is describing before the physicist even thought of it. That God is connected to every piece of his entire universe through invisible cords that have vibration. Very interesting. Wednesday's lesson. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. To the messenger of my children in the church of Philadelphia write, This message is from Jesus, who is holy and true, and who is the key from David's line, the door to restoration, which he opens and no one can shut, and the doors he shuts no one can open. I know your choices. Recognize that I have opened before you a door for your healing that no one can shut. I know you are exhausted, but you have not given up. You have lived in harmony with my methods and have not rejected my character of love, but those whose minds have become a sanctuary for Satan, who claim to be my children but are liars, as their characters are like Satan's, I will make them see the truth and they will fall down at your feet and acknowledge that what I love is my children being healed like you. Since you have been unwaveringly following, followed my instructions and lived in harmony with my methods, I will heal your characters and you will have nothing to fear during the difficult time to come upon the world, which will differentiate the true nature of those who live on the earth. I am returning soon. Hold on to the remedy you have received, and no one will trick you out of eternal life. Everyone who prevails by completing the treatment and lives in harmony with my methods of love until the end, I will make a pillar, a living stone in the heavenly temple of my God, a community of holy beings. Their connection with God will never be severed, and I will write in their beings the character of my God, and they will be marked as my citizens. They will be marked by me as citizens of the New Jerusalem, which is to come down out of heaven from my God. I will also write my name in their hearts and their minds. Those whose minds are open to the truth and understands what the Spirit reveals to the churches. What are the lessons for us today? We're going to kind of rush now. God's plan of salvation, again, do you see through every one of these, he wants to heal hearts and minds, restore us to unity with heaven. And whether, and we either become, we either become a sanctuary for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, where we are lights that reveal God's kingdom and methods, or we become a synagogue or sanctuary for the devil and reveal Satan's methods. It's one or the other. It's the only choices you've got. The prophetic time frame historically is 740 to 1844. And the open door, shut door metaphor, don't think literal doors made out of wood or steel. 
Don't think that. Think of paths through which truth enter and through which love flows. When Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. So Jesus, in his humanity, opened a door to salvation by his achievements. That door to salvation is open for all. It remains open, but there's a a door that also has to be opened. It's it's like a two-door deal. He opens the door to salvation, but there's another door that has to open. What's that door? The door to your heart. It's like one of those uh, hotel rooms. You got a door on each side. Okay, his door's open. He's opened it. Question is, will your door be open? So there's a shut door element that's another side of it. And so I want to read this out of First Elected Messages uh, 63. It says, I'm still a believer in the shut door theory, but not in the sense that we first employed the term or which it was employed by my opponents. There was a shut door in Noah's day. There was at that time a withdrawal of the Spirit of God from the sinful race that perished in the waters of the flood. God himself gave the shut door message to Noah. Okay, what, what caused the people not to be on the ark? So what shut them out? Notice that, okay? Keep going. Many examples here. My spirit will not always strive with man. That's quoting from Genesis. There was a shut door in Abraham's day. Mercy ceased to plead with the inhabitants of Sodom, and all but Lot and his wife and two daughters were consumed by the fire sent down from heaven. What caused the condition of things in Sodom? Their choices, again. There was a shut door in Christ's day. The Son of God declared to the unbelieving Jews of that generation, your house is left to you desolate. Who caused their house to be left to them this way? Their choices. Looking down the streams of time to the last day, the infinite power proclaimed through John. These things say to the whole says that he is holy and he is true and that hath this key to David an open door that no one can shut. So what door do you think Revelation is referring to when it talks about opening doors and shutting doors? It's opening a door of salvation, but can we shut the door to our hearts? Yeah. And I'm, I, there's some other quotes here. And it's talking about we can shut the door to advancing truth. And so he's opened a door, and here's the truth for this time. And we can walk through that door with him and advance in truth and light and transformation and healing. Or we can say, no, I don't like design law. I don't like God healing and creating. I don't want to go down the door. I want to go down the path of I've had all my sins placed on Jesus, and he's paid the legal price, and I'm going to claim that legal ticket into heaven, and I'm saved, once saved, always saved, and no one can change that no matter how I live. Because Jesus paid my price. And I can go out and I can murder and I can steal and I can rape. It doesn't matter. Jesus already paid the price. I'm, I'm going to heaven anyway. What do you think about that door? So when it says the door he shuts, no one can open. It is the individual closing themselves off and refusing to consider truth and walk that way. Yeah, so here's a quote. About this, uh, continue on. I was shown in vision, if you like visions, and I still believe that there was a shut door in 1844. All who saw the light of the first and second angel's messages and rejected that light were left in darkness. And those who accepted and received the Holy Spirit, then they moved forward in the light. She goes on to say, those who did not see the light had not the guilt of its rejection. It was only the class who had despised the light from heaven that the Spirit could not reach. Notice what's being described here. It's kind of, I think, kind of archaic language. Basically saying, only those who had the truth presented to them and understood it and chose no to it, shut their hearts to it. Those who never even had it presented, their hearts are still open to it because they haven't said no to it. Very straightforward. 
And that's the shut door. And then we're going to go real fast on Thursday. To the messenger of my children in the church of Laodicea write, the message is from Jesus, the consistent, reliable, faithful, and true witness, who is the origin of God's creation. I know your choices. I know that you are neither on fire with love, nor do you appear cold with selfishness. I wish you were either on fire for my kingdom or clearly opposed to it, but because you are a lukewarm mix of cold hearts practicing selfish methods while appearing to be on fire for my kingdom, you misrepresent me and make me sick to my stomach. I'm about to vomit you out. You claim to be spiritually rich and full of heavenly treasure, thinking you have the truth and are in need of nothing. But you are so self-deceived, you don't realize you are devoid of my character of love. You are decrepit, pathetic, bereft of true godliness, with minds so closed that you can't even comprehend truth. You stand naked and exposed. My prescription for you is to exchange your corrupt motives for the gold of godly love, purified through fiery trial, so that you can be rich with what heaven values. Exchange your filthy, selfish characters for the perfect character of Christ, pure and white, so that you can cover the shame of your imperfection and apply the salve of the Holy Spirit to your mind so that you can see and understand the reality of your own condition and that of God's kingdom of love. It is those whom I love that I diagnose and provide these therapeutic interventions. So so take ownership of yourselves, turn away from destruction and apply the remedy. I am here now. I am standing at the door of your hearts, knocking with truth and love. If anyone hears my voice and opens their hearts, I will come in and commune with them, and they with me, everyone who prevails by completing the treatment and lives in harmony with my methods of love until the end, will sit enthroned with me just as I overcame and sit enthroned with my Father. Those whose minds are open to truth will understand what the Spirit reveals to the churches. What do you think? What are the message for us today? This, and this time period is from 1844 till the second coming of Christ. So this is where... For the prophetic application, we're living, living in the time of Laodicea. Rich. We're righteous. We've got the truth. We got the Sabbath. We got the right doctrines. We got the t- right 28 fundamentals. We don't need any more. We're part of the remnant. So the message is buy from me the gold tried in the fire. How do you buy? The righteousness of Christ, because the gold tried in the fire is a perfect righteous character. That's what the gold is. How do you buy it? Through the barter system. You can only get the righteousness of Christ if you surrender your own unrighteousness. You can only get selflessness if you surrender selfishness. You have to lay down your life and take up his life. That's how you do it. It's an exchange. That's why I wrote in the remedy, exchange yours for his. And that's the act of the soul itself. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so privileged that you love us so much that you have sent messages through your servant John, through history, for the people then, through people through history, and for us today. And Lord, we know we're living on the cusp of reality, the cusp of your coming, and we would love for you to empower us to to be able to take the message that you want taken for this time to this world, that people can comprehend and see and make the choice to prepare themselves so that you will come and take us home. We pray in your holy name. Amen.